We're going to learn some things out tonight about the greatness of our God, but not from the Psalms. You're going to turn to Luke 15. We're actually going to learn something about God from the parables. Now, while you're turning to Luke 15, some people get kind of confused by parables in the New Testament, and they kind of wonder, why do we have those? They're somewhat confusing. They're hard to figure out. So why did Jesus speak in parables? I'm reading you from Matthew And Jesus says this, This is why I speak to them in parables, talking about the children of Israel, because seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their ears, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would hear them. First reason is that Jesus, fulfilling prophecy, that's the second reason, was wanting to make sure they didn't understand something they didn't want to understand anyway. They didn't want to know who Jesus was, they didn't want to know why Jesus was there, and they weren't going to accept it. And so Jesus speaks in parables to help reinforce that fact. But he adds two verses here that we have to understand. This is what he says to his disciples. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and didn't see it, and hear what you hear and didn't hear it. They can't understand them. We can, because Jesus gave us the keys and the clues to understand what it was he was talking about. He wanted his disciples to know what he was saying, and therefore he wants us to know what he's saying. So you're in Luke 15, and you're going to see, seemingly, looking at three parables. And some of you say, what's a parable again? I'll give you the definition people love, an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. You got that one? A regular day-to-day story, but it's got more meaning behind it than what you think. But they always address a specific issue, they answer a particular question, or they correct wrong thinking. They always had a purpose of one of those three things. Many times they focused on one thing, sometimes maybe two or three things, but they always were related. So understand, when Jesus is talking in parables, he wants his disciples to know, even though they have to usually ask him later what he meant, But he's trying to address something that they need to understand. Now we're in Luke 15. Look at the first couple of verses and we'll see before we get to the parable what was happening. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what you have here is you have the tax collectors... And sinners, the public sinners, you understand when it says sinners, it was those who were actually publicly known as sinners. That's why you know the prostitutes, the tax collectors, everybody knew who these guys were. They were coming to hear Jesus because they identify with Jesus' message. And you see the problem. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling or complaining that he receives sinners and eats with them. What kind of person is this who calls himself the Son of God, that he receives sinners and eats with them. So notice what he says in verse 3. So he told them this parable. 
Jesus told the, the Pharisees and the scribes this parable, but the disciples are listening in. So all, then he tells them this parable that says singular, doesn't it? And you're going to say, wait a minute, there's three parables in this chapter. No, there's really one with two introductory materials to help us understand something about the third one. So that's your background. So let's see the first two parallels first. He told them his parable, and first he says this, verse 3. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his, together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I, so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over nine, one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." So what are some of the introductory thoughts he's throwing in here? First, he's talking about these sheep. And the reminder is here, we'd understand these are very valuable to the shepherd. You don't want to lose any of them. All of them were of value to the shepherd. Secondly, we have the idea of something lost is going to be found. Thirdly, because of somewhat lost is found, there's going to be rejoicing for some reason. Because... I found what is lost. So rejoice with me, I found what was lost. But we have the idea of the sinner involved there at the end, and you've got the idea of repentance. So it's got something to do with sinners, and it's got something to do with repentance. Number two, verse eight, some more introductory material, or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing. She's got 10 coins, but she can't afford to lose even one. These are valuable to the woman. And yet one was lost, and what's lost is going to be found, and there's going to be rejoicing because she found what was lost, and yet still at the end there's talk about a sinner and there's talk about repentance. Look familiar? So now we've got the details of what we have to keep in mind before we get really to the actual parable that Jesus wants us to understand, wanted the Pharisees to understand, which they couldn't, but he wants the disciples to understand. So verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and everybody, if you have a Bible and a study Bible, has a title for this section, and it says what? The parable of the prodigal son. Unfortunately, that's not the title. It tells us there was a man who had two sons. This is the tale or the parable of two sons, not the parable of the prodigal son. So understand this first. Both sons are important to understand to this story that Jesus has point that Jesus is going to try to make as we go through this. So understand this. Would both sons be valuable to the father? Sure. 
Both sons are going to be lost. Both sons will have the possibility of evolving rejoicing. Both sons have to do something to do with sinners and something to do with repentance. Now, how do I know those facts? Because Jesus already laid those facts out in the first two commentaries before he got to this. So these are the ideas he wants me to pay attention to that he's going to point out when he gets to the story. Now, look at verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So understand, each already had been given his inheritance, which means the older son had been given a double portion because he would be given a double portion to take care of the family in place of the father. Because of his position as firstborn, his responsibility was to take care of the family. So at this point, both sons have their inheritance. So let's go to son number one, the one most of us are more familiar with. So the younger of them, verse 12, we just read, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So let's start with son number one. What's the situation? Number one, this son wants no part of his family and no part of his father. You're saying, wait a minute, I didn't see that in there. When he says, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me, he's telling his father, I wish you were dead. Because that's when he only determined that he should have gotten his inheritance, what is his father's death. And so he's telling his father, I want nothing to do with you. If you're, I wish you were dead and you gave me your stuff. Secondly, it says he gathers all he has and takes a journey to a far country. Most of their inheritance at this time would have been property. His family's property. So to get enough funds to go to a far country, what do we have to do? Sell his family's property. I want nothing to do with my family either. Now again, if we understand, don't understand the culture of the Jews at this time, we miss some of these details that the, the hearers would have understood directly what he was talking about. So he wants no part of the family. I'm not in this family, and you're not my father. So what's his status? Pretty obviously he's a sinner. To sell his family's inherited land? Remember in the Old Testament, the Jews, you didn't sell your land. 
Remember the story of Naboth and Ahab? And Ahab wanted his vineyard, but Naboth said, I can't sell you the vineyard. It's part of my family's inheritance. Under the law, I can't do this. And so for him to do that would be greatly a sinner, let alone to squander it all in reckless living. What steps did he take? Well, we know. He goes to a far country. He spent everything he had. He's in need because of a famine. He works for Gentiles in relation to pigs. He wants to eat their food. Doesn't say he ate the pods, by the way. Says he longed to eat the pods. He wasn't even quite that bad off. He's going to eat the pods. But he would have liked to have something. But notice that last phrase in verse 16. No one gave him anything. The implied thing is there, he deserves something. Somebody should have given him something, but no one gave him anything. So somewhere he's got to uh, save himself, doesn't he? He's in dire straits. He's got nothing. He's got nothing to eat. Nobody's going to give him anything. It's in a place of famine. He's in real trouble. So how's he going to save himself? Well, here's his plan. He's got a plan together for how he's going to save himself. He comes to himself. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Verse 17, but I perish here with hunger. So I'll arise, go to my father and say to him, father, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what's his plan? I'll work to save my life. I'll go and be a hired hand because I'm no longer a son. I remove myself from my father. I remove myself from the family. And so the only way to save myself is, I know kind of what my father's like, I will go and say, let me work to save my life. That sound familiar? How people think they can save themselves? Well, he is sorry, though. He does repent. Remember that word repents in there somewhere? What's he say? Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so he goes to his father with this whole spiel. First he says that, then he's going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want you to note when he gets to verse 21. And the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's still more of his speech he doesn't get to give. Have you noticed that? Before he even finishes his speech, the father has already forgiven him. Kind of strange, isn't it? How could that happen? Well, because the father had a different plan than the son number one had. Son number one plan is, I'll work it out myself. The father's plan was this. Number one, we see that when he's a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Remind you, he wanted no part of the father. And yet the father goes to him. By the way, remember, the shepherd went to the sheep and the woman went to the 
coin. And the father goes to the son. In Jewish culture, by the way, as soon as this son would have done this and told the father he wanted him dead, he would have been written off as dead. Nobody would have tracked him. Nobody would have followed his, what he was doing. Nobody would have checked up on him. Nobody ever would have looked at him again because he was not welcome anymore in that house. He was not welcome in that village. He was not welcome anywhere near that village. And everybody would know what he did. And so he could not even be allowed anywhere near there. And nobody would care what he did after that point. And yet, what's the father been doing? How could the father see him afar off? Had to be watching, didn't he? The father's been watching for him the whole time. And so he felt compassion. He ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Then what's he do? The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. This would have been the festive garment worn only on three feast days. And this son who was considered dead by everybody in the family and the town now must get respect not because of who he is. He doesn't reserve any respect because he's wearing the father's robe. They respect the father's robe, so therefore they respect whoever's wearing the father's robe. Secondly, he gives him a signet ring. He couldn't have done any business in town himself because the town would have let him come back in. But that ring gives him authority to do the father's business in town. And they would all do business with the father's signet ring. Why do they put shoes on his feet? Because slaves didn't wear shoes. Only sons wore shoes. And by putting shoes on his feet, he reminded him, you are alive as a son. You're not dead as a son. You're alive as a son. And here's your shoes to wear. And then there's a party. But I hate to tell you, it's not an honor of the son. The party's in honor of the father who found the son. Rejoice with me. Remember the woman with the coin? She had a party. Rejoice with me. It was for her that they rejoiced. The shepherd said, rejoice with me. I found the sheep. You rejoice for the shepherd, not for the sheep. Not for the coin. The rejoicing is not for the son who was given life. The rejoicing is for the father who found him and gave him life. Good story so far, isn't it? Wait a minute, we're not done. And bring, verse 23, the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. He kills the fattened calf, which was saved for religious feasts only. And then he eats with him. And you're going, what does that have to do with anything? Just flip back to verse 2 of chapter 15. What was the complaint? This man receives sinners and does what? Eats with them. What did the father just do with son number one? He received the sinner and 
ate with him. Isn't that interesting? But that's all the parable's about, right? Son number one. No. It's also about son number two. That's a parable of two sons. So, verse 24 tells us with the first son, this my son was dead, is alive again, he was lost and is found, they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." Son number two, what's the situation? He wants no part of this family. His father's throwing a party and he refuses to go in. When he talks about wanting to celebrate in verse 30, he doesn't want to celebrate with his family. He wants to celebrate with his friends. I want no part of this family and I want no part of you. What's his status? Sinner. In this Jewish culture, this son number two, to insult his father that way, he would be classified as major sinner to ever do that with his father. Remember, the whole town, the whole village would have been invited to this party. And the older son's doing this in front of everybody. So what did he do? We just saw that. He heard about, heard the party, heard about it, asked about it, gets angry, refuses to come in. So how's he going to be saved? Well, here's your problem. He thinks he's already righteous enough. What's he been doing? Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. He'd been out working hard. But verse 29 tells you how he really thought about this. Look, these many years I've served you, slave for you is the word, and I never disobeyed your command. I've been hard at work, but all these years I have been slaving for you. Oh, and by the way, I never disobeyed your command. I was the good son. But now we already know what he really thinks inside, don't we? What his heart's really like. I'm already righteous. In fact, I deserve what I get because you never gave me a young goat. And I deserved one much more than the younger brother deserved one. And you never gave me any respect. You never gave me a goat. You never, remember the first son said the same thing? Nobody gave him anything and the second son says you never gave me anything not even a young goat and i deserved it by the way romans 11:35 who has ever given to god that he should 
repay anybody. God owes none of us anything for serving him. What's he been doing? He's lived for what he can get from the father, just like the first son who lived for what he could get from the father. Now, some of you all these years thought son number two was the good one, right? You missed the point. Is he sorry? You don't see any repentance from son number two at all. He doesn't go to the party. He thinks he's worthy. By the way, back to verse 7 or verse 2. Remember the Pharisee describes grumble, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in verse 7, Jesus said this, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who think they don't need to repent. They think their righteousness covers them enough. Getting a feeling who the second son represents? You understand we know he's absolutely not repentant because he resents others. He resents the father for blessing others. He can spot sin in somebody else a mile away. What did his brother do according to him? With this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. I can see every sin. I compare my life with my brother's life and you know who comes out ahead in this one. And you're giving a party for that one. Not only giving a party, you're giving my fattened calf. And if you give my calf away, what's there for me? How many times do we sometimes get a little upset when God blesses others as if he doesn't have enough to bless us with too? How come they're getting something and I'm not? They don't deserve that as much as God might run out. God never runs out. But in this case, he won't give up anything of what he perceives as all his because remember, he got his inheritance too, the double portion. And he's thinking, this is coming out of my inheritance. And the idea, no, it's not. The father had more. Is there any joy in this guy? We got real rejoicing with the first son, didn't we, at the end? There is no joy. He won't go to the party, and he's ticked off about it. He had no joy in service because he'd been slaving for him for all these years. He had no joy in people, even his family. Because look what he said in verse 30. When this, does he say his brother? When my brother, that's not what he says. What's he say? When this son of yours... I can't even be happy for my family because it's all about me. So his solution is, I don't need any salvation. I've got it all together. The father has a different plan. Remember the first son? Son's plan was, I'll work for it. Father had a different plan. Second son's plan is, I don't need any salvation. And the father says, no, you got a different plan here. And so what is the father's plan? What does the father do? First thing, he leaves the party and goes and finds his son. Did you see that? 
Verse 28, but he was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. The first son, he saw him afar, and he goes to him. The second son, he knows he's outside, and he goes to him. He doesn't have the son come to him. Secondly, he entreats him to come to the party. Why? He wants to eat with him. Remember that verse? This man hangs out with sinners and eats with them. And the father says, second son, come back to the party so we can eat together. He also tells him this, everything I have is yours. Did you remember that? All that is mine is yours. I gave you a double portion. You are my chosen firstborn, but you still need to come to the party. It is fitting, verse 32, to celebrate. It's fitting that you humble yourself and come to this party. By the way, evidently the second son would not do that. Now let me remind you of something else. Remember, he's speaking this to the Pharisees, to the scribes. These are Jewish people who would have different reactions to the story probably than what we do. We probably all have the same reaction to the first son, right? Son number one, the younger son, should have been disowned, disinherited, never allowed back in the house or village again. As he's telling this story, and these Pharisees are listening to him, they're thinking, no Jewish father would ever let this son come back. What he did is so sinful and so insulting, no Jewish father would ever let him come back. Second son, at the least, they would say he should have been totally ignored, at least shunned for a while. But when he insults his father twice, first he insulted him by not coming to the party and demonstrating he was for his father. Secondly, he insulted him by saying, you killed the fattened calf for my brother. That's not why he killed the fattened calf. He killed it for himself. It was to rejoice what the father had done in finding the son. It was not to rejoice for the son. And so the second son insults his father by saying something the father didn't do. You did this for my rotten son. No, I did this for myself. And by the way, his story is, verse 30, when the son of yours came who's devoured your property, the prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He would have no clue of how to know that because once his son left, nobody would have followed up on him at all. And if you remember the beginning of the story, it just said he squandered his property in reckless living. It never said he was spending it with prostitutes. And if he did spend it with prostitutes, what should have happened at village was they should have taken the younger son out and stoned him. And by the way, if the second son was telling a false story that could have gotten the first son killed, under the law, he deserved to be stoned. So again, no father would have gone out after this second son. Thirdly, back with the first son, 
in verse 20, the father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him. No Jewish father would ever run in public. That was undignified. And secondly, he would never run after a son or any son who had insulted him the way these two sons had. No father would do this. Now, you got the story? Now, what's the point? Because remember, the parables have a point, don't they? And this one probably has three points, and they're interrelated, that Jesus was trying to get across to the Pharisees who wouldn't understand or accept it, but he wanted his disciples to understand this also. First point is this. Guess what? Jesus receives sinners and eat with sinners. We got that point, didn't we, from the start? That's what the Pharisees were upset about. And how many times did Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are... Always ticked off the Pharisees when you say that, wouldn't it? But he'd say, guess what? I receive sinners and eat with sinners. What do you think God does? The Father. So the first point was this. By the way, Pharisees and scribes, it's worse than you think. Not only do I pursue sinners and eat with them, the Father pursues sinners and eats with them. How do you like that? How's that fit your picture of God? He rejoices with them. He has compassion on them. He embraces them. He gives life to sinners. He gives them everything they don't deserve. He gives them all authority they shouldn't have, but it's his authority on them. Oh, and by the way, you can't earn any of this. Did the younger son deserve anything the father gave to him? He deserved nothing. He deserved death. And by the way, he thought that's what he deserved too because he was coming back for a job. That's all he was coming back for. And the father says, guess what? I'm giving you all you had and more because that's the kind of father I am. So the first point is, this is a God of grace. Secondly, he's a God who does things for his own glory. This party was for the Father's glory. Not for this two, any of the two sons. It was for the Father's glory. And what he does is for his glory alone. By the way, do you understand the younger son had two prayers that he got answered, but not the way he expected the first prayer was, Father, verse 12, give me the share of property coming to me. Now, did he already know what he was going to do? He'd already decided in his mind, I'm taking this stuff and I'm going. We know that from the story. And so a wise father who probably knew his son and knew his son's inclinations probably would have answered that with what? No. I'm still alive, I'm not dead, you get nothing. 
And by the way, you're out of the will. Wouldn't he say that? This father gave him exactly what he asked for, knowing he would have problems because of it, but also knowing it would lead him back to him. As soon as it was gone, that son was coming back. And the father would be able to show his glory in spite of the son. But the second request that he was going to have for him was in verse 18. I'll arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What answer did he think would bring the most glory to the father? To that. What's he looking for? Give me a job. That'll make you look good. Don't bring me back as a son. Bring me back as a slave because that will make you look better in the eyes of everybody. If you even take me back, you only take me back as a slave. The father said, no, I got an answer that will glorify me even more. I'm going to give you stuff you never believed I would give to you. And I'm going to throw a party and have you there, and I'm going to celebrate you and eat with you, and I'm going to give you life when you were dead. Does that bring glory to the Son? Brings glory to the Father. What a dad this is, isn't he? This is the one who was watching for him a long way off. And he sees him and has compassion on him and runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. What a great father. And this is about the rottenest son you'd ever want, wouldn't you? Isn't Jesus good at finding a picture of somebody where everybody would agree this is a rotten kid? Jesus says this, or God says this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you understand that God has a much higher purpose in what he does than we can comprehend? That this is a God who does things for his, because of his grace and for his glory? And the Pharisees' picture of God that they even was trying to wipe out, they saw in Jesus, was a God who only rewarded performance and only rewarded them who looked pretty righteous and those who, by the standards, didn't need any repentance. That was their God. But Jesus says, understand... The Father is greater than anything you can imagine. He breaks all the boundaries of what we think a father should be like. He seeks lost sinners, he finds them, he gives them life, and then he plans on eating with them for eternity. It's amazing how many things we think we get because we deserve them from God and we think we deserve these blessings and Jesus told a story to make a point to the Pharisees that you better understand that the God that I am representing that I am demonstrating to you is nothing like the God you think he is he's so much greater you can't imagine
don't get caught with a low view of God as the Pharisees and scribes did. And he wants the disciples to understand this is a God who seeks the lost, but he finds them. And then heaven rejoices, not for us, but for God's glory, because this was the God who sought us out. Let's pray. Father, you are so much greater than we have any comprehension but you give us these little glimpses in your word that remind us how fortunate we are to be sought out by you and even more how much fortunate to be found and given life. May we not take that life for granted. May we not use it for our own purposes or think we are so righteous because we are sons, but to remind ourselves our righteousness is only found in your son. And we thank you for it. Amen.